The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss the Great Flood, tracking down its origin and looking at several versions of it manifest in various mythologies and religions. We are going to begin with ancient Mesopotamia, at why the Great Flood myth originated from this region, at least, why the oldest extant version of the Great Flood myth originated from there, then moving on to ancient Egypt to showcase that ancient civilizations founded around rivers had a habit of incorporating flooding into their mythology. After this, we are going to cover the story of Noah's Ark, the Biblical Flood, then paying a cursory glance to the Great Floods that appear in both Greek and Norse mythology, Finally, we are going to wrap the video up by delving into two versions of the Great Flood myth that came out of Mesopotamia, one that centers on Zeusudra, who survived a world-destroying flood by building a boat, this version being the oldest in existence, and a second that centers on Atrahasis, who also survived a world-destroying flood by building a boat. I've included timestamps in the description so that you can skip ahead if you're only interested in certain segments. Let's get into it. Mesopotamia, which means something like between two rivers, is compounded from two Greek words, meso, the Greek word for between, and potamos, the Greek word for river. It was an ancient region that spanned over what is today Iraq, as well as parts of Turkey, Kuwait, Syria, and Iran. The two rivers indicated by the word Mesopotamia are called the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. They originate in Turkey, enter Iraq via the northwest, run the length of Iraq, and end in the southeast, where they flow into the Persian Gulf. Mesopotamia was the ancient region that existed between and around these two rivers. The phrase cradle of civilization is used to describe Mesopotamia. The reason for this is that our oldest archaeological evidence for many of the most seminal innovations that helped drive forward human civilization were first conceived of and put into use there, including cities, schools, laws, mathematics, writing, the wheel, mass-produced bricks and ceramics, the sail, and timekeeping. The Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are the reason our oldest record of the Great Flood myth is from Mesopotamia, both for developmental and narrative reasons. Developmentally, the regular flooding of both rivers enriched the surrounding land, making it extremely fertile, which, in turn, made it the perfect place for the advent of the Agricultural Revolution, also called the Neolithic Revolution, around 10,000 BC. Until that time, humanity comprised nomadic groups of hunters and gatherers. The rich land surrounding the Tigris and Euphrates rivers allowed agriculture and the domestication of animals to commence removing the need of constantly being on the move in the pursuit of food sources. People established permanent homes, these growing into communities that eventually blossomed into cities. I'm sure you've heard the expression, many hands make quick work. Well, the same can be said about minds with respect to innovation. Where once people were constrained by the intellectual output of whatever small group they belonged to, now the ingenuity of thousands in close proximity could be harnessed. As well, the implementation of improved farming practices, such as irrigative agriculture, allowed more food to be produced by fewer people, not only allowing more people to live in the same place, but also affording people the luxury of pursuits that went beyond cultivating subsistence staples. 
Furthermore, population density made life more complicated, creating a need for writing that didn't previously exist, especially as a means of keeping records, including economic transactions, administrative activities, and legal disputes. Mesopotamia was characterized by complex social and economic systems, including the development of cities, trade networks, and centralized forms of government. In order to keep track of these activities, Mesopotamian scribes developed a system of writing using cuneiform, which involved pressing a reed stylus into clay tablets to make wedge-shaped marks. The development of writing in Mesopotamia was also closely tied to the growth of religion and the need to keep track of religious rituals and beliefs. Priests and scribes played an important role in the religious life of Mesopotamia, and they were responsible for recording and preserving religious texts and rituals. Being the first to write, the people who lived in ancient Mesopotamia, specifically the Sumerians, were the first to record their myths, which is why the oldest stories we have detailed information about come from there. What's been said so far also applies to ancient Egypt, where writing was developed only slightly later. Writing also independently developed in China and Mesoamerica, though not nearly as early as Sumerian cuneiform the first writing system created in ancient Mesopotamia, and, more broadly, the world. Moving on to the narrative side, that a civilization built around two rivers that regularly flood would create a myth about a great flood makes a whole lot of intuitive sense. People didn't know much about the world back then, so they pieced together myth mosaics to account for the world they lived in. To explore this further, we are now going to spend a minute looking at ancient Egypt another civilization that incorporated a great flood into its mythology. The Fertile Crescent, a term coined in 1916 by Egyptologist J.H. Breasted, refers to a crescent-shaped region that begins at the Nile, tracks the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and then arcs south through Syria and Iraq, following the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to the Persian Gulf. Like the twin rivers around which ancient Mesopotamia flourished, so did ancient Egypt flourish around the Nile River, a river that has an annual cycle of inundation and recession. It floods, renewing the fertility of the surrounding land, and when the flow subsides, crops are planted and harvested. The importance of the Nile River to ancient Egyptian mythology can't be overstated, influencing the overarching cycle of creation and destruction that was forever taking place. Ancient Egyptians conceptualized the universe as a boundless body of water called Noon, from an emerged a tomb, a self-engendered creator deity. He independently created two children, Shu, the personification of air, and Tefnut, the personification of moisture, both of whom coupled to create Geb, the personification of earth, and Nut, the personification of the sky. Osiris, Set, Isis, and Nephthys later born to them. As we know our atmosphere to be enveloped by the void of space, sparsely speckled with planets and stars, the ancient Egyptians believed that the air pocket the earth existed in was encased in the boundless waters of noon. Here we have the earth emerging from water as the fertile banks of the Nile emerge after inundation. And similarly, what brings about the end of the world in Egyptian mythology is also tied to the Nile's annual cycle. It was thought that a tomb would one day grow weary and let the earth sink back into the waters of noon. Here we have a great flood of cosmic proportions closing in to consume the world paralleling the time of inundation when the Nile rushes over its banks and pours into the surrounding land that hems it in. Just as the Nile had a yearly cycle, 
So is the overarching process of creation and destruction thought of as cyclical, each destruction followed by subsequent creation, and so on. We are now going to go over the story of Noah's Ark, then moving on to the Sumerian flood myth and then the Akkadian flood myth. In the book of Genesis, the human race had become so wicked that any hope of salvation was, as judged by God, beyond it, something akin to an appendage afflicted with rot that needed to be amputated, cut away from the whole. But then God was given pause, taking notice of Noah, a man described as righteous in his generation, a man, unlike the rest of his race, who was actually worth saving. Noah was instructed to build a giant ark for himself, his family, and all the birds and beasts of the earth. Specifically, seven pairs of each animal considered clean and one pair of each animal considered unclean. Clean animals were fit for consumption and sacrifice, while unclean animals were unfit for these purposes. So with the ark constructed and all of the birds and beasts loaded up, Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives all boarded. What ensued was anything but gradual. The springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven were fully opened. The deluge continued unbroken for forty days and forty nights. But even after the flood ceased, water no longer erupting from below or torrenting from above, 150 days passed before the water subsided, like the ebbing of the tide, long waiting in its withdrawal, that was God's wrath. On the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark struck land atop Mount Ararat. Eventually, Noah sent out a number of birds to scout around. The first returned with empty claws, the second returned with an olive, and the third never returned, signaling to Noah that it was finally safe to disembark. An altar was built, and one of every clean species was burnt and sacrificed to God, and the smoke rose up to heaven, where God savored its sweetness and vowed to never again bring about the destruction of the earth, saying to Noah and his family, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Interestingly, variations of the Great Flood are also present in both Greek and Norse mythology. In Greek mythology, Zeus flooded the world to destroy humanity, which had degenerated into an infestation of wickedness. Deucalion, the son of Prometheus, and Pyrrha, the daughter of Epimetheus and Pandora, were forewarned by Prometheus, so they built a wooden chest and took refuge inside, allowing them to survive the flood unleashed by Zeus. Similarly, in Norse mythology, a great flood washed over the land, only this was a flood of blood that gushed forth from Ymir, the first giant, who was killed by Odin and his two brothers. This charnel deluge nearly put an end to the race of giants. However, complete eradication was prevented by Burglmir, he and his family managing to ride out the flood atop a wooden chest. In 1872, the world was shocked by a controversial discovery. George Smith, an Assyriologist, made public an account of a great flood that preceded the biblical account, meaning he brought to light an account of the great flood that came before the story of Noah's Ark. What Smith publicized was translated from a cuneiform tablet from the library of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. What Smith translated is today known as the 11th tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh. This 11th tablet recounts Gilgamesh's quest for eternal life. Though he was the mightiest man alive, death loomed before him as it did for every other person, and the idea that there was some inexorable and inescapable force that would one day claim him terrified Gilgamesh, prompting him to embark on a grand search for Unapushtim. For long before, Unapushtim and his wife were the only two mortals to survive the flood the gods unleashed to drown the world. 
both of them later transported across the sea where they lived infused with the eternal bloom of everlasting life. Since Smith's groundbreaking translation, other pre-biblical descriptions of Mesopotamian origin that describe a great flood have been recovered, the oldest of which, though in bad condition, is one from Sumer that dates back to the 3rd millennium BC. This oldest version, let's call it the Sumerian story, begins with the creation of life on earth, with the genesis of humans and animals, as well as the origination of five main cities. What happens next is unknown because the tablet on which the story is inscribed is broken. But though this intervening portion of the narrative is lost, the story does pick back up on the next surviving piece. The gods resolve to bring about the destruction of humanity by drowning the world in an all-consuming flood. However, this decision lacked unanimous consensus, some gods standing in opposition to this radical reset. One such god was Enki, the god of fresh water, and while he couldn't forestall the flood, it was in his power to at least ensure that a seed of humanity survived the cataclysm. He worked through a man named Ziusudra, a man of virtuous and pious character. Enki instructed him to build a large boat, which he did. Here's the passage that describes him riding out the storm. All the winds, amazingly strong and powerful, attacked, and the deluge rampaged over the earth. For seven days and nights the deluge rampaged in the land. The huge boat was slung about on the vast waters. Then Utu came forth, he who sheds light on heaven and earth. Ziusudra the king threw himself down on the ground before Utu. He killed an ox, slaughtered a sheep. Unfortunately, what happened next is mostly lost but some fragmentary information is still available to us. Ziusudra was bestowed with a sort of ascension, becoming almost godlike, and he was taken to Dilmun, the Sumerian utopia, a land in the east reminiscent of the Isles of the Blessed, a paradisiacal place preserved for the heroes of Greek mythology after their departure from the realm of mortal man. Another story of the Great Flood is that of Atrahasis. Dated at approximately 1700 BC, it was inscribed in Semitic Akkadian and is also of Mesopotamian origin. Atrahasis, another name for Ziusudra, was a hero who lived 1200 years after the gods wrought humanity of water and clay. The human population had grown and grown, so much so that their mere existence created an unending din that prevented the gods from sleeping. To rectify this, the storm god Enlil harrowed humanity with a series of hardships beginning with a plague, following with a drought, and punctuating this three-stage gauntlet with a famine. Despite this, humanity proved more resilient than Enlil had anticipated, proliferating back to its pre-devastation level. This apparent failure then catalyzed Enlil to escalate his approach, radicalizing his goal from culling to extermination, this taking the form of a great flood that would swallow up humanity. As before in the Sumerian story, not every god was aligned with absolute annihilation by deluge. One such god was Ea, the Akkadian counterpart of Enki, the god of fresh water who gave succor to Ziusudra in the previous Sumerian iteration. He broke his oath not to divulge Enlil's plan to humanity, counseling Atrahasis, a man of pious and virtuous character, to construct a capacious craft, one large enough to fit himself, his family, and animals of all sorts. Although the gods were cognizant of what their course of carnage would entail, as it turned out, conceiving and perceiving weren't equivalent. The death and destruction dealt by the flood horrified the gods, 
Every person and animal was consumed like a cloud of plankton in the prodigious gulp of some cosmic whale. Only Atrahasis, his family, and the animals he managed to herd onto his boat surviving. Unwittingly, the gods had put their very existence in jeopardy, for without a thriving human population, they were now starved of sacrificial offerings. When Atrahasis finally dedicated a sacrifice, this happening after the storm subsided, it having relentlessly raged for seven days and seven nights, the gods, on the brink of starvation, swarmed around like a veritable rug of rats over a fresh corpse. Not wanting to eradicate humanity, but neither wanting to enable another population explosion that would deprive them of sleep, the gods imposed an array of more moderate countermeasures, introducing population control by making life harder for humanity. From that time on, sterility and barrenness afflicted some men and women. Some people lived chaste lives to maintain religious purity, and demons sometimes materialized at births to snatch the life out of newborn babies. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.